Don't talk to me unless it's about this. I'm here with one of my favorite authors, Lucy Tan, who wrote the book, What We Were Promised. It was longlisted for the Center for Fiction First Novel Prize and named a best book of 2018 by the Washington Post, Refinery29, and Amazon. And we're going to talk about that book and Lucy's writing, as well as another book that we've been reading together by a different author called The Family Chow by Lan Samantha Chang. And we've read part one of that book, so we'll be talking about that first half. And to start, Lucy, I wanted to go right into obsessions and ask you, what is something that you're really into right now? Uh, first of all, I love this question. I always love people asking people about their obsessions. Um, <laughs> so what am I obsessed with right now? Right now, I'm currently really into the idea of being an artisan. So, you know, for me as a writer, I spend all day in my head and what I create is intangible, <laughs> like until it reaches a book form, right? Um, and then someone can enjoy it or not, but all of that is also very subjective. And so currently I'm obsessed with the idea of making something that can be used in a tactile way. So I'm really into knitting. I'm currently really into... Um, learning about glass blowing. So oh. there's this Netflix show I've been watching called Blown Away. And it's gorgeous, the things that they can make in the hot shop, you know, with their hands and with fire and heat. And I recently took my, um, my so actually my husband is the one that's really into this show. So for his birthday, I took him to a local glass blowing uh, studio. And so they taught us how to make objects. So we made, he made a drinking glass and I made a paperweight. Um, so yeah, so I'm really into learning about glass blowing right now. Um, and pottery, I signed up for a pottery class, uh, getting back into knitting. So I'm excited to hunker down for fall and just make a lot of stuff. I love that. That's funny. I'm thinking right now, I can think of several other authors who at least publicly talk a lot about their own physical crafting. And I totally see this connection of why that would be appealing because, writing is not like you're not creating something physical like you said with your hands and so it brings such a nice different kind of creativity and release Absolutely. when you have and I that love, kind of hobby I love kind of getting into that space where you're just doing you know um and not and I guess zoning out isn't quite the word but getting into the zone and letting your body take over and when I do that my mind is actually better able to think about writing so I love knitting while I'm writing because, you know, the repetition, um, the focus on my fingers allows my, the creative side of my brain to also be expressed. I got into macrame during the pandemic and yes. that's been a, a fun new craft. Are you still doing it now that, you know, the world is opening back up? I am doing it at a slower rate. Um, I recently made a, I made a garland, like that you'd hang up for a party. It's, the one hard thing is that because it's like you can't just hold it in your lap, it's usually a big project. It's harder to do just kind of at little moments throughout the day. And so I've been yeah. thinking to myself, okay, I think I want to do either a smaller project or also have some secondary craft hobby that's like very easy to just whip out and like take on an airplane or, you know, I gotta take say, on the go. Knitting could be your thing. Knitting is really portable and you'll never want to watch TV without something to knit ever again. It's nice because you can feel productive while you're knitting. I have so many better. people in my family and friends who knit, and I am so intimidated by it. It seems oh, really hard. 
It is. It's hard in the beginning, but then once you kind of have the basics down, everything else is very learnable and you can go at your own pace. And if you, especially if you have people around you who know how to knit, then it should be a pretty easy jumping off point because yeah. you have support. What kind of things do you like to knit? Um, I like doing sweaters, uh, which is very in line with my identity as a novelist <laughs> because, you know, I just like to leap into those huge projects um, that are really hard and I like figuring it out and then it's very satisfying when it's complete and then you can wear it. Do you find yourself making connections between like the lessons that you use and learn in knitting in writing? I noticed for myself, I'm a runner and I can find a lot of similar connections that I learned lessons in running in writing or like in other parts of life. Does that happen mm -hmm. for you? I'm sure there are connections, but I actually got into knitting because of the opposite reason. So writing, I've always sort of been good at. And so then you put a lot of pressure on yourself if you're making something your career, something you're supposed to be good at. You can get really in your head about it. Um, I'm not a natural knitter, or I wasn't in the beginning. I, I felt like my spatial awareness is terrible. My understanding of like, you know, how things are supposed to go. I, I just wasn't a, a very natural knitter. And it, I loved pouring my energy into something that I thought I was bad at because it removed the pressure to be good. And then eventually I got a lot better. And now, but I don't know. I just, I, I like having this hobby where I don't have to be good at it. And it's like the thing where consciously I'm like, this is not the time to be a perfectionist. Um, so I love that aspect about it, which is very different from my writing. Um, but I'm sure there are many parallels that are, that are like, like I said, you know, the, um, love of a big project, of a hard project, of a new skill to conquer. Yeah, I think that that is, that goes hand in hand with how I approach my writing. I want each book to be something new that I haven't, you know, something I haven't tried before. What about you? What, how does writing relate to writing? I think. Or not writing. What? what? Yeah, writing. Um, writing I am writing. Okay. working on writing in a, in a hobby form right now. Okay. Um, but I think one thing I've noticed is like the warm up. It, you know, you need to warm up. I, I need to mm -hmm. warm up into writing the way I do with running. I also notice similar feelings in my resistance to starting. It just always feels really daunting, like, oh, should I run today? It's going to be hard. Or, oh, writing's going to be too hard today. And then it's always just fine once I just start. I definitely relate to the second one that you were talking about, where once you get going, it's like, oh, this is what I was meant to be doing all along. Why did I put it off for so many mm -hmm. hours as I was, you know, on the internet? Exactly. <laughs> well, let's talk about your writing. And I wanted to first ask how you like to describe what we were promised to people who haven't read it yet. So what we were promised uh, is a family story set in Shanghai in 2010. And it's about this wealthy expat couple. They were born in China. They, you know, spent their lives and built careers in the U.S. and they're moving back to China Um for the first time in many years. And so it's a story of a homecoming and it's a story of a city that is going through a period of great change and modernization. In this story, there's a couple and they have a daughter, Karen. And so Lena and Wei are the couple and they live in this high-rise hotel and they have a housekeeper named Sunny who is also sort of in their orbit. And the story is about the summer that Wei's brother, long-lost brother, comes home and the havoc that this sort of brings upon the family dynamic. And it unearths some secrets that were sort of 
kept for decades and um, the family has to come to terms with their relationships with one another and their lost hopes. And um, for Sunny, it's a story of coming into selfhood and, um, you know, it, it's, it's about class, it's about culture, um, it's about what it means to be Chinese and American and it's kind of a love story. Love triangle, love story, all kinds of love stories in there. How, what do you consider to be the way this book started? The way this book started, it was based on two years that I spent in China after I graduated. So I've been back and forth in China for ever since my dad moved there for work. So when um, that was, I think, my junior year of high school. And so I had been seeing this city sort of develop in that time. And so when I moved there in 2010, it was um, the summer of the the expo, the international exhibition, where all the countries come and sort of show off uh, their or re represent their country in Shanghai. And um, that was a really interesting experience, the way the city got ready for this um, event. It's it was probably what I imagined to be how things were in Beijing when they were getting ready for the Olympics. And there was a sense that the whole world was kind of looking at Shanghai and at China. So I don't know. It was a it was a summer that really stuck in my mind. And I remember thinking someone should write about this. I would love to read a novel about this one day. So fast forward to when I was back in the uh, back in the U.S. and I was in grad school for creative writing. I wrote a short story about a housekeeper in a high rise hotel who is accused of stealing something from one of the residence rooms. And this story was called Ai. And I workshopped it and my professor basically said, this sounds like the opening to a novel. And at the time I was like, oh, well, that's interesting that you said that because I have all these ideas of what I want, you know, of these characters' lives and I want to go into their interior lives. And I am interested in exploring this a lot more. So yeah, one day I will do that. And she was just like, what, what are you doing now? What are you in school for? Do this now. And I was like, oh, well, I'm working on short stories. And she said, you know, for a novel, it would be nice to have people around who can help you with that. And, you know, I'm someone who could maybe help you. So you should try that now. And so she gave me the confidence to go ahead and do it. This was full semester of my first year. And so that November we had, you know, there's national... Uh, what is it called? NaNoWriMo National oh, Novel Month mm -hmm. in November. So she had given us an assignment to, to write a novella in that time. So I thought, all right, let me just give it a shot. So I just kept writing words. And I remember my group, my um, MFA co cohort, we would meet at the library and we would each try to put down a thousand words a day just to kind of keep us on track to hit the, the word number that she had wanted us to do for this semester, which was, I think, 20,000 words. And that was kind of how it took off. Do you remember, were there big points that changed from the short story to the finished novel? Or was it mostly similar structure, but just everything expanded? Everything expanded. So that first, um, so my novel is broken up into chapters that switch for point of view. Um, 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 back and forth in the, between the characters. And Sunny's first chapter is basically that first, that short story. Not this short story in its entirety, but it was almost exactly, you know, what the short story, um, how the short story started. 
How do you think writing that book changed you as a as a writer, but also as a person? I think the main thing, the main ways in which it's changed me as a person, I've always wanted to be a writer and I've always wanted to publish a book. So I think that book made my dreams come true. It made me feel like I had gotten to the point where I could say, you know, I'm a published author and that was really life-changing for me. Um, and I guess as a writer, it, it stretched me. It was, I mean, I'd never written a novel before. I had only written short stories and I am most comfortable in first person point of view. That is my most natural um, voice. I think that I can inhabit. My novel was written from third person point of view. So and it was third close. And I got to uh, write from the point of view of so many different characters. And so all of that really pushed me. Um, so I grew. I grew a lot with that book. Do you, in your writing now, do you think back to kind of lessons that you learned in that process or uh, like either in the process of writing in terms of the craft of it or maybe it's more the publishing side? Mm-hmm. Um, I think I'm still on the trajectory of kind of getting over the hump of the learning curve. I definitely feel that I've, I'm constantly learning more with my current project than I am drawing on what I've learned from the first project because my first novel, I wrote really quickly and I wrote in a bubble. You know, I was in my MFA program. All I had to do was wake up each morning and write. My entire life was about getting this book done. That was a very unique experience that doesn't last. It's not sustainable. And I had a kind of adrenaline, I think, that maybe you only get once in your life. I don't know. Maybe I'll feel it again. But it it felt like a very unique experience. And I think that, you know, my writing since then, I think it's always chasing this um, mindset this mix of mindset and environment and um, the way that you manage your time, it always feels like a mixture of elements that are constantly changing and difficult to define um, to be able to sit down and work for any length of time. Here's what I'll say is the thing that I have hung on to from the first book is that I learned that to have faith, maybe, I learned that the more hours that I put into something, it you know, the better it will be. I'm not afraid of breaking something in order to make it better. I have faith that time makes you wiser. The more time that you spend in a world within the, the heads of characters, that world is going to be richer just due to the number of hours that you spend in it. So I'm not anxious about that anymore. When you're trying to get, like you said, spending that time in the character's world, is that happening exclusively through writing or are there other things you do like going to visit a place or doing an activity a character does or other things outside of writing that help you get into that character's life i would say that by the time that i'm ready to write about a character all of what i'm drawing from has is already sitting in my head so i'm not someone who necessarily needs to listen to a song again and again to really get in the mood or somebody i, I definitely do research you know, once I have this idea of, okay, this is my character, this is their background, this is where they grew up, I'll go out in search of factoids and of, you know, little bits of inspiration that help me round out that character. 
Um, but it's not necessarily to get into the mood of writing or to learn about who they are in terms of interior mindset, if that makes sense. Right. It sounds like it's you, it forms in your imagination first and in your research. Yeah. Is there a character from what we were promised that you think about the most still? Um, no, actually. I think I think about them pretty evenly. But I I think that, you know, there was a moment in the book that I think I thought about a lot before writing the book. Um, so it's that moment in the book where Okay, maybe I should tell the story this way. So I don't know if this happens to you, but sometimes you hear a story and it just sticks with you. It's like a story from real life and you, you can't stop thinking about it because you just have so many questions about how it came to be or maybe the, the, the moment feels filled with tension. And for me, it was when my mom told me a story about her classmate when she was younger and her classmate was in love with this boy and they were set to get married and he didn't study the right thing. So his, so she, she was an athlete and he was also in the school for athletics. And her parents said that you need to date an academic. You need to date somebody who has a future um, in science or math or something a little bit more in line with our expectations of you. And so she listened to him and she made plans to get married to this other guy. And on the night before her wedding, Sorry, the night, the, the morning of her wedding, she walks outside and she just sees that her front stoop is littered with cigarettes and her ex, the man that she was in love with, smoked. And so mm -hmm. he had come in the middle of the night and sat outside her door and smoked a lot of cigarettes, probably sat there the whole night. And then he went home. And that story has stuck with me because I had just so many questions like, what must it have felt like? What did he go there for? Did he want to knock on her door and then decided not to? And if so, why did he decide that actually her future was better with this other guy? Or maybe he just didn't have the guts? Or, you know, what what really happened? What was going on in his head? And then how did she feel when she saw that, right? Did, did it make her want to go back to him? Was it a moment where she decided, okay, this is the last I'll see of him are these littered cigarette butts? So it was a really rich visual um, story in my head. And that made its way into the novel. And I still think about that story, you know? So I sometimes think that novel writing is, a, is just collecting a lot of charged memories or moments of imagination that, that you have gathered through your life and finding life for it inside a book. That story is just seems like it's straight out of a, a rom-com or something. Right. <laughs> seem like real life. Yeah. I love hearing these examples of just a like you said, something in real life and that you put it into making it into a story. I had I listened recently to an, an interview with Meg Mason who wrote Sorrow and Bliss and they she had this one aunt character in the book who's kind of very pretentious and um, has these like fancy dinner parties and she said it all came from she knew someone who when they had a dinner party, they always like the plates had to all be past the left and that was the like just that one thing then created this whole character in her mind. And I love mm. seeing those connections. Yes, I love it. Yeah, something just sometimes things just stick with you and you got to get it down on paper. Does your mom have you talked to your mom about that story? And for her, does it like even stand out in her memory? She's like, oh, yeah, that was, I didn't think that was that important. <laughs> um, we haven't actually talked about it specifically. I mean, the book that I wrote is so 
I've harvested so much from their lives that I think there's so much else to kind of talk about. And then also some things are maybe too tender to talk about. I think, you know, um, it means a lot that she read it and that she has been supportive of it. But yeah, we haven't talked much about the details of the book. My name is Sloan Tannen. I live in Oakland, California. I absolutely loved Lucy Tan's What We Were Promised. I think the book particularly resonated with me, perhaps, because as a writer who had attempted to write a character a bit like Sunny from What We Were Promised, in my case, a Mexican housekeeper in Los Angeles, I could not pull off what Lucy did with such beauty and poignance and eloquence. I was blown away, and I'm just going to read a, a short passage that illuminates um, how, how well she did this. But Sunny didn't feel much anger towards Tai Tai. The things that made her insufferable, her mood swings, her privilege, Sunny was used to. Over the years, she and Rose had learned how to work around women like her. They had collected secrets about them, information that confirmed how unreasonable or wasteful or vapid they were. Having less wealth than the residents of Lanson Suites had allowed Sunny to feel morally superior, and that was why she could work for them. The knowledge that she was better than the people she served. She had thought Rose shared the same belief, but Rose's stealing that bracelet was as good as admitting that those women's belongings had power over her that their wealth was worth exactly what they wanted it to be worth. Well, why don't we go to talking about Family Chow? Will you... I'm so excited, too. I am really happy that I, that I picked this book. I kind of feel like it's the perfect book club book. So tell us, tell everybody how you picked this book for us to read. So I have always been... I've been for years meaning to read more of Sam Chang. Um, so the author, she goes, uh, is published... Um, under the name Lan Samantha Chang, she wrote a, a short short fiction collection called Hunger that I read in my early twenties, and I love. I mean, I the novella in that collection shook me. Like I remember reading it and then sitting on the floor, kind of shaking. So it's been just way too long that I haven't read anything else by her. So I was so excited when she had a book come out this year. Um, and I've been waiting to read it. Uh, so, so anyway, so that's how I chose this book. It's fun that we're reading it together for the first time, that we're both mm -hmm. fresh in it. So I wanted to start with one of these things that Dago said. He said, we chows who are full of passion and inner chaos, none of us can bear to be in our present lives. and." I mean, speaking of things that shake you, I feel like that was a quote that I was like, oh, wow, I can really relate to this feeling of not finding contentedness because mm -hmm. I have things that I want to be bigger or better or different. And, you know, how do you balance having dreams with having satisfaction in daily life? And I'm curious how this comes up for you. I don't know what kind of personality you have. This is a struggle that you have. Um, what do you think having read that quote? I associate it with being young and sort of able to control my circumstances. I associate it with being a teenager in the suburbs, wanting to get to a big city, 
Um, I associate it with being in a city and feeling super lonely and, you know, wondering if I'll ever find love or find, you know, connectedness in another person or, you know, in an art form. I associate it with writing and wanting to be read. Uh, I associate it with so much. And I think a lot of that I definitely feel in the book, too, because, you know, with, from Ming's perspective, the second brother who is has has always wanted to leave his small town and make a name for himself. Um, that's certainly true. And I think it was really interesting to read about what success means to each of the brothers. What about you? Definitely all the brothers. I was very interested in their definitions of success. I appreciate the way you bring up that. It is, it's easy to have that perspective at any phase of life and to always be thinking it's going to be better on the other mm -hmm. side or, oh, it used to be better and like it's not going to be that good again. And it's a reminder that obviously circumstances always play into life in some ways. And also your attitude makes a huge difference in how you see it. Like mm -hmm. these three brothers, like you said, they all had the same circumstance of what their upbringing looked like, and they all had very different ideas of what a happy future would be. Did you relate to one of the three brothers more than the other, or did you maybe not relate to any of them? Um, I related mostly to Ming. I think he's the one who is the least passionate of the brothers. Um, he's the one that is the most rational, I think. and. Um, well, I don't know if that's necessarily true because I, I, I don't think that James necessarily is like Dago either. Um, why, why did I relate to me so much? I don't know. It's just this like gut. I mean, he's, do you have an answer to this question? Do you feel like you related to one over the others? Probably James. Yeah. I I, I, de I don't think I could relate to Dago very much. And I think what I could relate to in James was, and he felt this, I think, because he was the youngest brother. And I'm, I'm not the youngest in my family. I'm in the middle. But I think I often approach other people in life as just assuming everyone else, like, knows better. And I feel like he had that very much where he idolized certain people and put them on a pedestal when he really shouldn't have or mm -hmm. took this kind of passive this person has the authority i don't approach and that's something i can relate to and you know it's not like a, a flattering that's something to work on um and usually that's what happens in books is you see the <laughs> the parts of yourself you're trying to work on <laughs> you know it, it's funny that you say that because i feel similarly about ming where i think his flaws are probably what i relate to in that he thinks he knows everything and I often think I know everything and I don't at all. <laughs> um, but also I think that, you know, each of the other two has something about them that is very different from me. So, for example, um, James is somebody who he's like, I just want a, like a comfortable small town life. And that's something that I didn't want. And then with Dago, he's so impulsive. And that's something that I don't necessarily feel that I am. And I, so I think that Ming is the one who's like, why are you guys acting this way? Mm -hmm. um, and so maybe that is what I relate to, the, the part of Ming that's like kind of judgmental. Um, that's me, as, as much as it pains me to admit. <laughs> 
It's all good. I feel like that has been um, my lesson in like podcasting about books is like, oh, this is just always airing my dirty laundry because that's <laughs> how I interpret books. <laughs> Usually what I find too is if I really hate a character, definitely things of themselves that I don't want to see in me, but mm -hmm. that's why I hate them so much. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There was another quote that I wanted to read. And this was when Ming and James have this long conversation in the diner and Ming, it goes into like elder storyteller mode. I feel like this was like a moment where he could have been around a campfire or something. Mm -hmm. And okay, they're talking about uh, their ages and what age .go is. And Ming says, there are only certain times in life when emergence is possible. The life strategy for children of immigrants, starting with nothing, is to use that time to build social, educational, and financial capital on which to ride out the rest of their lives. Dago has blown it. He's now interested in salvaging his middle age by becoming a member of the petite bourgeoisie, but he doesn't have the capital to be a member of the petite bourgeoisie. And er, I should have actually started with earlier in the page. James had been wondering to himself, is it really true that there might be in any human life a certain window of time that matters more than any other. Mm -hmm. And I feel like they're talking about two things here, this, this concept of is there a certain time in life that matters more than any other in general, and then also that concept related to, like you said, this immigrant, children of immigrant experience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to get your thoughts on this idea. And we could start with talking about the children of immigrant experience or just that more broadly concept. Yeah, I think I would I would say that this is also, you know, I, I think that there's there's something to be said about this this window also being different per generation. So so I think for the immigrants, the generation that immig immigrates to the states, I I think that their goal is to survive, right? And then the next generation, their goal is to take their situation in life and and make something more of it so make a lot of money and then the and and capital and sort of power right and then the next generation is the generation that can have the freedom to create art i this is a really simplistic way of of seeing it but this is kind of how i've i've noticed um this to be true uh, just of you know, the people that I'm around and, um, you know, my parents' generation and the mindset there. And I think that my parents are really liberal compared to their friends. So in a way, our family has kind of skipped a couple of generations. Um, but it's interesting that this is sort of the accepted understanding for a lot of Chinese-American families here in the States. As far as there being a window within one's life where they're able to do these things, I think that that might be true, but I don't necessarily think that it's age-based. I think it depends on the person. So for example, um, some people come out the gate and they're like, this is what I want out of life. And I have the next 20 years to like really kind of uh, pedal to the floor, put everything that I have into it. And I think that that's kind of how I was. I really, really wanted to write. I really wanted to be a writer. And I threw everything into making that happen. I remember when I wrote What We Were Promised, I would wake up at 4 a.m. in the morning just like with words, with sentences. I wanted it so badly. My body was just 
kind of just ready to go each morning. You know, it, it felt completely consuming to me. Now I'm at a place. So there's a line in the book where it's like, once you're 34, that window closes. And I turned 34 in, in October and they're not wrong. You know, <laughs> Sam Chang is not wrong. <laughs> um, I definitely feel like I have less of that kind of energy. Um, but, you know, there are other friends of mine who chose their career based on vice, based on, you know, what their parents thought would be the most lucrative, what they thought they were good at, not necessarily what they were passionate about, and are now in their 30s realizing, hey, this isn't what I want to be doing. And so now it's time for me to leave my job, start my own uh, business, or, you know, go into a career that I care more deeply about. Um, and I think that that's their window. You know, it, it starts in their 30s, maybe lasts till their 40s. I don't know what that is. But I, I do feel that there is a limited amount of energy that's, that sometimes we have in our lives. And, and just in certain moments in our lives, it's time to use that energy. But I don't necessarily feel that it has to end when you're 34. I think that that window could be um, different. I, it's like there's almost one idea of, you know, you're just constantly, steadily growing in life. And then this other idea can be that there are these bursts and these seasons. And I think I'm more apt to believe that that's kind of, you know, human nature. Things are very seasonal and cyclical. And there are going to be these times of, of burst and change and transformation. What kills me reading it is like, God, I just want to know when I'm in it. <laughs> like, <laughs> I want someone to tell me this is, this is really it. <laughs> Yeah. You know, the other thing, interesting thing is like, what must James feel like listening to that? He, you know, because like what he thinks of when he hears that is not what we're thinking of and, um, you know, necessarily what we want for a career. He's probably thinking like, okay, so I need to get laid now. Like, this is my window, right? Like, I have mm -hmm. to make it happen. And he's, he might be someone who more considers life this just like steady growth and I don't need this big like emergence moment. I'm just trying to get my girl and settle in. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Do you, and so for you, your, your time of, you feel like your time of emergence was this period writing what we were promised if you were like looking back in your life so far. And I think, you know, probably we all have like multiple moments of emergence, but for you, does that seem like the one that stands out the most? I think so. Yeah, I think it's the time where I kind of put everything. Um, I was all in. You know, I, I had a job before that. I used to be a product manager. I quit that job. I, I you know, w was in grad school for writing. Um, that was the moment where I was like, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it now. Um, and the way that I came to decide to do that is is just that I thought, you know, would I regret this? I didn't go all in. And I think the answer was yes. So. Yeah, I think that that was a big turning moment in my life. What about you? Do you feel like, what have, what have your moments of emergence been? Part of me kind of wonders if I'm in that phase now. Uh-huh. I, yeah, I think I'm really, I've done a lot of different things professionally and I'm, I'm 31 and I, I have a, a one and a half year old and that's been a whole transformation. And I feel like I'm very much trying to figure out what brings me the right balance of like creative fulfillment, community, allows me to be involved in my family. And yeah, my friends who are 
are into astrology, I think they call this like the Saturn's return. And like that happens sometime in your late 20s, early 30s. And I'm like, maybe that's me right now. <laughs> I don't know. What What is the Saturn's return? I've never heard of this before. I can't speak to it that well. I know very minimal things about astrology, but the idea is that Saturn takes 27 to 30-ish years to go around the sun. And so when Saturn comes back to the same place it was when you were born, that's your Saturn's return. And it's supposed to be this really big transformational time of, of like upheaval and, mm. you know, figuring out who you are and your purpose. And it's supposed like a tumultuous, but uh, I love this word emergence. I've never thought of that as like a way to describe these moments, but I feel like it's actually pretty perfect. And mm -hmm. I, that's, well, she was using 34, which is later, but makes me think I'm like, oh, did Samantha Chang know about the Saturn's you're get, return? Yeah. You're getting a head start on, on, on this, you know, 34, the 34. age 34 time deadline. Yeah, the, the cliff. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Hello, everyone. It's Caitlin. I wanted to first say a sincere thank you for listening and also invite you to join our Patreon community. It's a place to continue these conversations off air to submit your own thoughts and ideas to be on the show, for you to join a community that will help you prioritize fun and enjoyment in your own creative endeavors, whatever those may be, and for us to come together for in-person events. You can see what the community is all about for free by signing up for our newsletter, where we share little snippets of what's going on on Patreon, or go right ahead and join the community right now. All the links are in the show notes. Well, speaking of all their fortunes, the the abbess makes all their fortunes. And this is something I've been really loving about reading books with people is it makes me go back and find details. And in the moment that she gave James's fortune, I don't think I really processed it. But then when I went back to reread it, having finished the whole part one, I was like, oh, my God, this is so telling. I'm so glad I reread this that um, Walter well, uh, Dago, his fortune was get away from the restaurant. Ming is told to return to the family. And then James is told he's going to come into a lot of money. He's also going to lose a lot of money. He's going to live this big, important life, have adventures, travel, and that the love of his life will be unrequited. And rereading it, I was like, oh, my God, what a dagger to James. You know, these are yeah. all the things he does not want. I know. <laughs> and it's obviously they're not good all of the brothers are told basically something they don't want, but I feel like his was in the most detail and maybe because I related to him, it hurt the most. You know, for me, it was easier to see, yeah, Duggo, you should get away from this restaurant. This is clear. Um, Ming, I also, I, I don't, you know, I'm like, oh, I see his resistance. I don't know if I necessarily agree with the fact that he needs to come back. We'll see how that plays out. Do you remember when you read Their Fortunes? how that impacted the way you were thinking about the story? Not at the moment, because I, th I think it was too early for me to understand the characters and their uh, their histories. But I guess now, having read it the first half, it makes some kind of sense. I don't know about James, because I, I feel like a lot still has to happen to him before he comes into a lot of money and loses a lot of money and decides even who he's in love with, right? But... um for Ming, it makes sense to me that he would get the advice to come back because it just seems that there's so much unfinished business in terms of his emotional ties to home. He clearly is in love with Catherine. 
So I wanted to ask her you all the time, like fighting with her all the time. And I think that, you know, home stands for too much for him. It, it, it's not, it's, it's too loaded. And I do think that there must be some kind of um, reckoning with that. So that makes sense to me. With Dago, I have a feeling that there's some shady stuff going on with the restaurant that no one knows about. Like, like I feel like maybe Leo is holding a bomb. I don't know what that bomb is, but I don't feel like the restaurant is all that it seems to be. Like, I don't think it's necessarily a fortunate thing for anyone to inherit. And I wonder if that's sort of what's being told to Dago, who can't really see that yet. This is me just kind of guessing at what's going to happen, though, plot-wise. Well, yeah, I'm dying to know. I agree. Leo is holding some kind of bomb. Um, and he's, he's given us some fake bombs <laughs> um, with... And even when he gave those fake, bomb, um, fake bombs, I was like, wait, you just made all that up? Like, I can't even tell now if you're making that up, that fact uh-huh. that it's a lie. Yeah. He, cause he's a very volatile, unpredictable character. And I'm glad you brought up Ming being in love with Catherine because I was, I was like, this is how I'm reading this, but am I reading this wrong? And he actually really does just hate her and Dago. But okay, I'm glad you confirmed that. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's how I read it, at least. Yes. And, well, have you, are you also thinking about this bag of money, that there must be this bag of money in the trunk of the car from the man that died, which is something I kind of, when it, I don't remember James taking a bag from the man who died in the train station, but then as it's being brought up, I feel like that's a seed that's being planted. Is that something mm-hmm. you're thinking is coming? Yeah, I don't know that it's necessarily money, but I definitely thought that this man is going to come back into their lives in some way or other. And I'm pretty sure that the random woman who shows up at the dinner is a relative of the person who died, right? Yes. And did she really say or do anything or she was just there? I think she was just there. She was talking to random people. Yeah. Um, And this bag is just sort of being carried around in this trunk. Okay, it's hilarious to me how everyone's cars in this world is just, like, kind of communal. Yes. (laughs) Like, everyone's just driving random cars around. Also, I don't know if this struck you as strange, but how is no one more concerned about this dog? This dog has been missing for so long. And it's not, like, a hardy dog. It's a French bulldog. French bulldogs can't even, like, give birth on their own. Is it a French bulldog? I think I was picturing, like, a... A, uh, like a white wolf kind of dog, but it, obviously, okay, it is you a could be right. I was actually the... confused. No, well, I mean, that's on the cover of the book. On the cover <laughs> is a French bulldog, but and then they mention, or she mentioned, like in um one chapter, how there was another French bulldog, or it wasn't enough. I think one of the characters says French bulldogs are this way, and I couldn't tell if that oh. was saying like implying that. Alf was a French bulldog, but then, yeah, when it was, when he was described, it wasn't really like a French, didn't look like a French bulldog, so I don't know. <laughs> okay, what's well, funny, now I'm realizing that I was reading this while I was uh, visiting my family and our good friends, I was just picturing their dog, because their dog is named mm. Al- Alba, and it's a name similar to Alf, and so I think I might have just, like, crossed this in my head. Makes sense. <laughs> yeah, I agree. No one is looking for this dog, and also, even just the timeline of the the book was stressing me out because I'm like, I, and I see it now how they're 
how they missed how they're not looking for the dog because all this stuff is happening in three days and it's insanity and i was like doggo hasn't sent out the invitations yet and this party is in two days (laughs) like (laughs) what's going on but it i imagine that's maybe part of the purpose is to build the sense of like chaos and anxiety in these like you said kind of we're waiting for this bomb to explode um, I wanted to ask you, do you have a character that you're most interested in? Most interested in? I think I'm kind of actually the most interested in Dago because I think I understand him the least. Mm-hmm. Like you said, he's very impulsive and erratic. And I am like, he's got these two women. Like, what is going on? How are yeah, they like both he just kind of tolerating this? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think he's probably... Of the characters we've learned the most about, the one I am most interested in. But then there are all these side characters that I'm wondering if we're going to get to know more, like Catherine or mm-hmm. what is James's Alice? Brenda? The girl, Brenda. No. Oh, uh, right. oh James. Yeah, Alice. Alice. James's okay. girl, Alice. Yeah. I probably, she seems the most interesting. Like when I look around at the characters, I'm like, who would I want to be friends with? I want to get to know Alice more in that way. Mm-hmm. What about you? So I'm most interested in Catherine. I think Catherine is fascinating. I mean, who gets broken up with? And then she's like, "Uh uh-uh, I'm sticking around. You know, and how much must it hurt to see this other woman have a full-on relationship with, you know, your fiancé, supposedly, who has, like, called off the engagement, but you're still around? I just feel like there must be a lot going on in her life. Um, I'm also really interested in this concept of fetishizing authenticity so she is ethnically chinese but was adopted so raised white i think or Mm -hmm. i guess can you raise someone raised by a white family yeah and Mm -hmm. um and then she has this idea that marrying into the chow family gives her some kind of i don't know authenticity i don't i should have marked the page where i felt that that was that um the author was sort of uh, I remember them talking about that too, and that was kind that? of her. She got into the whole relationship because she was so attracted to the family's Chinese heritage and the food yeah. and the culture. Right, right. So that yeah, that the idea of that is interesting to me. So Catherine's a mystery. I also feel that I've gotten to know basically nothing at all about Leo and Winnie. In the sense that we don't go into their heads at all. They're kind of, we're meant to take them as, at face value. Whereas we are given a peek into Catherine's point of view as well as Brenda's. Right. Yes, Winnie, I feel like, is holding back some secrets we haven't seen yet because they've made mention to, it was more than just Leo that drove her out of the house. There's mm-hmm. more reasons why she chose this spiritual community to live a, a part of. And... And she seems like a very complex woman, that conversation she had with, I think it was Dago in the hospital where he's, you know, he said to her, yeah, I I do look down on the fact that you stayed with dad for that long. And she, I honestly, I didn't totally understand her explanation back because it was so hard for me to see her point of view where she was trying to explain, no, this was love. And I remember writing a, a big question mark next to it of like, it's not that I think she's wrong. It's that this is something where I'm having so much resistance understanding. Mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. Yeah. 
yeah, I, I wish I had done a better job of flagging these things in the book because I want to look at what the actual, actual lines are. But yeah, I agree. I think she's, she's a mystery to me as well. Um, and in a sense, I wish that she would speak more because I think everything, everything that we're getting from her, so little of it is dialogue or it's coming from her, her mouth. It's, it's often through the lens of one of the brothers talking about her, um, or, you know, just her actions described. And now she's potentially even more incapacitated. Mm -hmm. So I do wonder what we'll get firsthand from her versus, or will we find out things about her in this more secondhand way? Mm -hmm. Well, Leo, I really just hated through and through <laughs> everything about him. I was like, I am finding nothing redeemable. You know, when there's, like you said, we don't get a lot of their background. Usually when there's a character that mean, it's you find out that, you know, they had an abusive uh, childhood or like you find out something where you, mm -hmm. you feel for them a little bit. Um, and I wonder, maybe I missed something because I was just hating him so much. But I felt like he was almost, it was ridiculous. Some of the things he would say. And I'm like, oh my God, he's going to keep going. <laughs> he's going to say something even more outlandish and mean right now. And I'm curious what you made of Leo. Yeah, I think he's a wild character. I I found him to be actually very refreshing. I wouldn't say redeemable, <laughs> but I he's kind of the opposite of the model minority, which is what I appreciate about his character. He's the guy who's loud and brash and just not, you know, the quiet Asian guy in the grocery store. He's 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 like I'm here and I'm going to be an asshole to the post office clerk. Um and I think it must have been horrible to grow up with somebody in a family like that. But I also enjoyed seeing how he has passed down some of his traits to each of his sons. So Dago has that, um, it's weird to say charm, but yeah, like Leo has a certain kind of charm. He has this face that is good at being in public. He has the ability to persuade people to do the things that he wants. He has the, people, the ability to convince people that he's right and that he will succeed and all of these things. And I think that this confidence has been inherited and also nurtured in their first son, Dago. And, um, and then even with James, sweet James, you know, has his virility. That's another thing that they, often Asian men are not portrayed as virile um, in media, in books, in films. And I love that he's just like this guy who's like very lewd. <laughs> I just haven't met a character like quite like that before. And um, so, yeah, I don't feel that he's relatable. I don't feel that he's re redeemable, but um, I didn't mind it, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Well, I think in many ways, Doggo seemed the most like Leo, and I think that's why they butt heads so much. And Leo, also his character, pushes a stereotype of parents should, you know, do everything for their children. And he yeah. is very much, he's like, uh-uh, this is my restaurant. I'm not just giving it to you, or I'm not mm -hmm, even mm -hmm. going to you know, help you in some way with this. I'm, I'm owed something here too. Yeah. And it's sort of in keeping with what we know of his character that he's like, okay, I will play the, you know, the filial duty card when it suits me, you have to come back and take care of your mom. But you know, when it doesn't suit me, I'm going to pretend like that agreement never happened. He, one thing I, I guess the redeemable quality I find in him is his sense of humor. I think like yes. when he, 
the way he brought the dog bones to the spiritual house and like, or the meat, you know, uh-huh, put that all out uh-huh. for the dogs and like, okay, he's such an asshole, but this is also kind of funny. <laughs> yeah. And he's so, oh my gosh, like in Chinese, we would call it light pee. He's like, mm, has no shame. He has zero shame. He's like, oh, and I sold the restaurant to this like wealthy developer. And then after recently, say, ha ha, that never happened. Just kidding. And you're just like, what? <laughs> just total firecracker. And you just like <laughs> act your age. Oh my goodness. Well, it made me think about how authors have to write characters that are, quote, unlikable or that they might not like. And I'm curious how mm-hmm. you look at your characters. Do you even think of it that way? I like this person. I don't like this person. No, no, I, I, I don't. I think of my characters huh, in terms of their vulnerabilities, maybe. I think to me, that is what is engaging about a character. Um, so even if I don't approve of, you know, the way that they are, I think that if they have soft parts of their personality, places where they might be hurt, that always makes me feel compassionate toward my characters. And I try to make sure that I understand them well enough to where you know, I love them to a certain degree, even if I don't uh, agree with their choices. I want to be able to see the humanity in them. Do you think since you've been writing, and it sounds like it's been most of your life, do you think writing makes you a more compassionate person? Um, I think that's a really good question. I think it's hard to write if you don't have a certain level of compassion or empathy just because it's hard to put yourself in the place of other people without that. Um, I don't think it makes me a more kind person. Um, And the way that I'm differentiating that is what I actually do for other people. I don't necessarily feel that I'm a better person because I write. Um, This might sound bad, but a big part of it is curiosity. I I just am really interested in why people do what they do, why people are the way they are, what motivates them, what hurts them. And it's kind of an intellectual curiosity. So um, I think that that's separate from how kind you are as a person. So no, I don't think that it has made me a better person. Well, I appreciate that. It's honest because, you know, hearing you say that about characters, you're able to really see all their vulnerabilities that seems like, oh, that's this thing we're like supposed to do with other people, right? To, you know, be kind. And the fact is it's it's hard, like you said, it's hard to transfer that, but you can transfer it in a certain way. It's curiosity. And that in itself is, I think, a really beneficial thing. I feel like I hear all the time about it's like management, you want to bring curiosity to those kind of things, um, or like mm-hmm. debates or disagreements. And that at the same time, you can, even if you are able to be curious and understand some more, you still can have preferences of these kind of people are hard for me to understand or I connect with these people. And like, I still probably wouldn't like Leo if I met him in person. <laughs> oh, I for sure wouldn't. I, I think, you know, I, I definitely show way more compassion toward my characters than I do to often people in real life. And it's because the people on the page you have control over, you can have distance from. They're not, you know, in the room with you, annoying you in whatever ways you might find annoying. Um, right. But yeah, I probably would be friends with most of my characters in real life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so this section ends with two dreams. It's Dago's dream and then James's dream. And 
Dago's dream really reads like an actual dream to me. I think Mm -hmm. at some point he's like flying through the air with Alf or something. (laughs) And but then James's dream, it seems like potentially a real thing that's happening. And he's hearing this, this thump, thump, this sound downstairs. And Mm -hmm. Alice says, you know, it's fine. Just go to sleep. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if you, if you make predictions when you read or you really try to just see what happens or how you feel stopping at this halfway point, looking ahead to the second half. Generally, I don't make predictions unless it's a mystery novel or, you know, something to be solved. But since you're asking me, I, oh, I feel like it might be one of those things where something from real life is triggering a thought or memory in his mind. And that thing is probably related to um, the old man. At least that that's sort of what my narrative impulse would be if I were writing this book. Definitely. It seems like the old man is very present in James's mind and mm-hmm. going to come back in some way. Part of me wondered, you know, they're sleeping in Dago's apartment. Is someone finally mm. going to die in this freezer? Um, that's been alluded to so many times. Mm-hmm, and I, mm-hmm. there was oh, also that's a good point before that chapter, the final chapter, I think Catherine, there was a mention like Catherine saw a light on in the office and the door was open in the back of the mm-hmm, restaurant. Mm-hmm. And that was unclear what that was. We know Leo had been in the freezer, but I think came out of it with, um, with Dago. So yeah, this the freezer, the office, that bag of money. I'm just waiting for all of those to. <laughs> it was hard to explode at this point. I don't know if that if you felt that way. It was. I really wanted it, to turn the page. I know. I had to really remind myself, like, no, I'm not allowed to read. <laughs> I have to yeah. go pick up another book and start it. <laughs> yeah. So I'm really excited to, to talk about part two with you soon. Yeah, me too. Thanks for having me. My name is Grayson Chin. I live in New York City. My favorite takeaway from Lucy's book was its perspective of Chinese returning to China that's so different from the one that they left. I think that the story vividly depicts Shanghai during that time. I related to the story because I lived in Shanghai during the 2010s, so it really brought to life a unique time period of that city that already doesn't exist anymore. This is a podcast, but it's also like more than a podcast. Don't Talk to Me Unless It's About This is a place for people in love and obsessed with storytelling to share in our admiration of books, music, comedy, and other forms of story, and to fuel our own creativity. So we have a Patreon community that you can try out for free. It's a place to continue these conversations off air, to submit your own thoughts and topic ideas to be shared on the show, Join a community to help you prioritize fun and enjoyment in your own creative endeavors, whether those are hobbies or professionally, and for us to come together for in-person events. You can see what the community is all about for free by signing up for our newsletter, where we'll share little teasers of what's going on in Patreon, or you can go right ahead and join the Patreon right now. All the links are in the show notes. We'd love to hear what you think about the show, so please tell us by leaving a review, emailing us, or sending a message on Instagram. 